0: We do all of this work at ADL, because we just deeply believe that again, if America isn't good to all its people, it will never be good to its Jewish people. And that our fate is intertwined with the fate of others. You know, there can be challenges because we don't necessarily agree on everything. But I think we have a shared stake in preserving our democracy and creating a more tolerant, respectful world.
1: Street, a strategic advisory firm helping CEOs and C-suites achieve maximum value, this is Word on the C-Street, a show where influential leaders reflect on the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and share their perspectives on the defining challenges and opportunities of our time. Hi, I'm John Hennis, founder and CEO of C-Street Advisory Group. Welcome to Word on the C-Street. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. You'll hear Jonathan discuss the role of traditional and social media in deepening partisanship, ADL's call for the resignation or removal of President Trump after the January 6th insurrection, and the three things he believes we can all do to combat hate. Thank you, uh, Jonathan, for joining us today. ADL has done so much combat anti-Semitism and hate. I want to jump in on, on something in the news recently. Tucker Carlson's Patriot Purge could incite violence. And I know you reached out and told Fox that maybe they shouldn't be putting it on the air. We have Facebook where I think your quote was, Never has a single company been responsible for so much misfortune as we see hate groups that are organizing on Facebook, misinformation everywhere. How do you deal with these major media companies, both social media and traditional media that are putting out misinformation? It's really just getting into kind of the bloodstream of our country.
0: First of all, Jonathan, thank you for having me. I'm glad that we're able to do this today. ADL is the oldest anti-hate group in the country. We were founded in 1913 around the trial and subsequent lynching of Leo Frank. You know, this Jewish man from New York was falsely accused of a crime, wrongfully committed, and ultimately hung from a tree. And, you know, in the intervening 100 plus years, ADL's worked to fight against all forms of hate. And I would say over the generations that this organization has been fighting and combating bigotry, we've seen different technologies adopted to target different groups. Before the Second World War, radio was used by people like Father Coughlin to propagate against Jews. Heck, the first motion picture was Birth of a Nation, a piece of propaganda directed against uh, Black Americans. We watched Henry Ford use his newspaper, The Dearborn Independent, to reprint the protocols of the elders of Zion. We watched as television was manipulated by bad actors to continue to push out stereotypes. I say all this because today we've got still traditional news sources like cable television and Tucker Carlson in particular, and new media sources like those available to us via social media like Facebook, continue to polarize the country and spread the kind of toxins which cause so much damage to the body politic. Now, I don't think either side of the spectrum is exempt from intolerance, but what Tucker Carlson tries to do on a daily basis, sanitizing, and kind of laundering what happened on January the 6th is so deeply, deeply terrifying. You know, this movement is called the J6, as if these people were patriots of some kind, but they weren't. It was the most predictable terror act in American history because they told us what they were going to do. And the idea of people causing an insurrection, trying to interview the democratic process, I don't know in what universe you can see that only for what it is, a threat literally to liberal democracy as we know it. And today it's the right, tomorrow it could be the left, who knows? Today it's voter suppression laws targeting black voters, tomorrow it could be voter suppression laws targeting Jewish voters. But all of this is just so scary. And I think reflects a profound shift in the way that political actors think about themselves. There's a piece in the Washington Post, somebody was, was referencing, you know, the recent Republicans voted for the infrastructure bill. And it was like, look, either our side totally wins or the other side totally wins. Politics never used to be like that. But social media services like Facebook and outlets like Fox are encouraging this kind of mania to think that it's, everything's a zero-sum game when it truly isn't.
1: Right after January 6th, you called for Trump to resign or be removed. Talk a little bit about that.
0: In 100 years at ADL, we have never taken a position as we did after January the 6th. But we had also never faced a situation of that sort, where you had a president of the United States actively seeking to undermine not just the integrity of his office, but the integrity of our electoral process. And, you know, there had been a series of escalating issues over the course of the four years of that administration. But the sight of people marauding through the Capitol with the president literally egging them on was reminiscent of things we'd seen in banana republics, not anything we ever anticipated happening in this country. That's why we acted the way that we did.
1: Think about Charlottesville, where you have white supremacists walking the streets, you know, with their tiki torches saying Jews will not replace us. And then the president getting up to say that, you know, there's fine people on both sides. How do we reconcile that today when that was out there so obvious on video for us all to watch?
0: It was so damaging. It was so depressing. And look, the reality is there were no fine people on both sides, quote unquote. Like there is no world in which we should countenance Nazis thinking that freedom of assembly is the freedom to assemble around a synagogue and threaten to burn it down as happened. But that freedom of speech is the freedom to slander people and threaten their lives as happened. That's an abuse of not just the first amendment, that's an abrogation of like our laws in this country. So I think we've gotta be willing to call out, you know, hate when it happens. And I think we've gotta be willing to look at these facts, not through a partisan lens, but through kind of the prism of our own principles. And even though that put us at odds with the president, I think it was the right stance for us to take because again, there's no way you could draw equivalence between peaceful protesters and neo-Nazis saying Jews will not replace us. Or between again, people calling to take down the statue of Robert E. Lee and a man driving his car to a crowd of people with the intent of maiming. So in the world in which I grew up, the place in which I think I still live today, decency and humanity and you know respect for fellow citizens isn't uh, an exception it needs to be the norm. And that's we're trying to enforce norms here I would say. And you know we've called out president of the United States on the right and we've called out people on the left. We'll call out republicans and we'll call out democrats because that's our job here at ADL. Our job is in a way to call balls and strikes. We don't play for either side. We're actually aligned with these institutions, pillars which make up our liberal democracy.
1: I was thinking when you were just talking about this Kyle Rittenhouse and the verdict, here we live in America and there's, uh, you know, a white man walking down the street carrying an AR-15. You know, I heard a lot of people say, well, based on the laws in Wisconsin, what the jury was given that probably came out the right way. Go back to Martin Luther King in a letter to the Birmingham jail, where he said that we should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal. But I think we've got an issue here where our country has gone so partisan and we are so right and left that we can't see kind of right and wrong. You have an organization focused on it. What, what do you think that a person like me should be doing to help make the country better and push down hate?
0: Well, first of all, I think every person has the power to, get, to stand up to stereotypes and to push back on prejudice. Every one of us has that power. But there's a kind of a heuristic that we use to talk about what people can do. First, I think people need to speak out. So when hate happens, we've got to engage and intervene. What was the Dr. King quote? He doesn't remember the words of his enemies, but more the silence of his friends. There's truth to the fact that even when it happens, whether it's at the water cooler at work, when we used to have water coolers, at the Thanksgiving dinner table, or it's in the locker room, or in your Twitter stream. Ordinary people can inject themselves and speak out against hate. Sometimes that might mean explaining to someone, hey, this is why I have a problem with what you said. Sometimes it might be reporting or flagging a tweet that is offensive. You know, you learn this as a kid, like if you see something, say something. And that also goes when you see expressions of intolerance. It's important to do that because if you hear something that strikes you as intolerant, other people probably feel the same way. That's not about cancel culture. That's just about creating a more tolerant, respectful, kind of environment Number to speak out number two i think it's important to step up for others so you can't just speak out when it's directed against you like i don't like that you said that because i'm jewish that offends me but we've got to be allies for our friends it's also about sharing facts we've got to resist the temptation forward that crazy email from your you know your neighbor's mother-in-law that insists that you know george soros is whatever craziness or sheldon adelson is whatever craziness and our current environment is so intemperate. People are so polarized. Speak out, share facts, show strength. I think those are three things that ordinary people can do to make a difference when hate happens.
1: Talking about speaking up for our friends, we've saw anti-Asian hate. Talk to me about how you work with other groups.
0: The ADL's been at this work for you know over 100 years. And we were founded in 1913 at a time when Jews, they suffered from what we might describe as systemic discrimination. They were prohibited from attending many universities, buying homes in many places, working in many professions, getting medical care in many spots. And what's interesting is in that moment, the idea was founded in the mission statement that we still use today that hasn't changed in a hundred and some odd years is our mission is to, quote, stop the defamation of the Jewish people and secure justice and fair treatment to all. And so we have felt compelled to work for others for the duration of our existence. We do that not only because... Our mission is bound up in this Jewish idea. We're not free unless we're all free. Jews in this country can't be safe unless every minority is safe. Again, that kind of evokes the ancient sage Hillel. But it's really what drives and animates so much of our work today. And so that shows up in lots of different ways. It shows up because we're Americans and we know what it's like to be a besieged minority, having been one in diaspora for almost 2,000 years. It shows up because our own Jewish community is multi-ethnic and multi-racial. Jews come in all different hues from all different countries and show up in lots of different persona. So when we stand up for black Americans and we have a deep partnership with the National Urban League, we ran a program last year called Our Time, Our Vote that registered 30,000 new voters, mostly people of color in Philadelphia and we're expanding that to 10 cities between now and the end of 2022. Mm-hmm. Or I helped to organize this big campaign against Facebook with Color of Change, LULAC, the NAACP, the National Hispanic Media Center. I co-chair the Sports Leadership Council, this big group with all the different leagues and a lot of teams and athletes with Derek Johnson, the CEO of the NAACP. We've worked on Latino community on doing a hate crimes education for uh, immigrants to the U.S. from South and Central America. Earlier this year, we incubated the Asian American Foundation. We have a deep partnership with the AAPI community to help them fight against hate. We do all of this work at ADL, allyship, joint programming, training, because we just deeply believe that again, if America isn't good to all its people, it will never be good to its Jewish people. And that our fate is intertwined with the fate of others. You know, there can be challenges because we don't necessarily agree on everything. But I think we have a shared stake in preserving our democracy and creating a more tolerant, respectful world.
1: It's okay not to agree on everything so long as you agree in the core. I focused us a little bit on getting on the right. So how do you look at the left?
0: I say, I start off this conversation as an unapologetic Zionist. And all that means, I believe in the right of the state of Israel to exist. The right of Jews to self-determination, in their ancestral homeland. That Zionism also compels me to support a Palestinian state. The right of Palestinians to have dignity and equality in a state of their own. Not only do I not think those are mutually exclusive, I think they are actually critically reinforcing. If these two people don't have their own places to live where they can pursue their own, not, not only their dreams of self determination and national identity, but do it in environments where their rights are enshrined and protected, neither side will ever be secure and safe. Now, that being said, What's unmistakable, indisputable, is that there are some, some on the left, also on the right, who are obsessed about the Jewish state of Israel. Or as they say, I'm not an anti-Semite. It's just that I think the Jewish state is illegitimate. The Jewish state doesn't belong. The Jewish state manipulates events. It's just like we used to hear from the many on the right, John, where they would say, I don't have a problem. I just think that the Jews are illegitimate. The Jews don't belong. The Jews replace Jewish people for Jewish state, and it's one and the same. And by the way, yeah, there are some members of Congress who have strong ideas. Yes, the squad has some strong ideas. So does Congressman Polkin. To think that it's just Congressman from, from Minnesota or Congresswoman from Michigan is wrong. We need to call out these people who are obsessed with Israel and hold it to demonize the Jewish state, try to delegitimize its existence and hold it to double standards, we need to call them out. Because if you're upset about what Israel is doing, but don't care about what China, some would argue, is doing to the Uyghurs, or don't care about what's happening in Myanmar to the Rohingya, or don't care about what's happening in, some would argue, in India to the the Muslim population, I mean, that's very problematic, or in Kashmir will be maybe even a more direct example. So- There's nothing wrong with criticizing Israeli policies, but there is something wrong when you hold it to double standards. There's nothing wrong with taking offense with certain activities of the government. I mean, ADL calls out the Israeli government, like call the American government. But when you question the right of the country to exist at the same time, when like the government of Iran every single day is calling for Israel's annihilation, that's a problem. And when you deny the reality of terror groups that seek to undermine the state like Hamas, which the day we're recording this podcast, you know, a Hamas cleric. Shot and killed a tour guide in the city of Jerusalem. Not someone who is threatening him, not someone who is quote unquote settler on the West Bank, a tour guide. Hamas is a terror group whose charter compels it to call for the destruction of the Jewish state of Israel and to murder Jews wherever they can find them. That's just the reality. That's just what their charter says, John. And unless we can be intellectually honest about this, I think we'll never see not only a solution to this. Long, persistent, deeply problematic situation. It will fan the the, fan the flames of anti-Semitism here at home, and we saw it happen in May, when fighting in Gaza after Hamas started lobbing missiles at Israel, missiles at civilian sites, resulted in brutal beatings in broad daylight of Jews all over this country. Again, people didn't ask them what's your opinion on Likud, or would you vote for Bibi Netanyahu, or how do you feel about Palestinian. You know, national aspirations, people wearing kipot or who are self-identified were Jewish were attacked and brutalized without any provocation. And these people weren't wearing MAGA hats attacking them, John. They were wearing like Palestinian It's it, And they came from anti-Israel rallies. Like that's what happened just a few blocks from where I'm standing here in, in midtown Manhattan or in Los Angeles Boulevard in Los Angeles or on the Las Vegas Strip in Nevada, and so on and so forth. I'm not even including the harassment and the vandalism. ADL, we've been tracking anti-Semitic incidents for decades, over 40 years, and we saw in that period of May, 115% increase year over year. Again, people weren't getting hit with Trump 2024 flags, they're getting hit by flagpoles that had Palestinian flags on them. it doesn't mean every person who supports a Palestinian state is anti-Semitic. I support a Palestinian state, for goodness' sakes, but it does mean that we need to be honest about the problems. People on both sides need to call out hate when it happens, even on their own team, even amongst their friends. That's ultimately, I think, the most powerful, and that's the way we really turn the tide on these issues once and for all.
1: I want to move now to you and business. I see the ethos water behind you, which started. Your mission was to provide children around the world access to clean drinking water when you started ethos. Talk a little bit about companies and social impact.
0: Ethos started in many ways, not with me, but with my business school roommate, Peter Thune, who conceptualized the concept of developing a bottled water that would use private's profits to help children get clean water. He came to me and we actually started the company together. And I had worked in government for many years before I went into business. I uh, worked at the Commerce Department and the White House doing international economics. And I'd been through much of the developing world, you know, in South Asia, in Southeast Asia, in South America, in a little bit of Africa. So I'd seen some of this up close and personal. And at the time, I was running a division of a software company. So I knew a lot about sales, engineering, marketing. I just ran a division and had a p and So it was a good way to bring together my concern for public service with whatever talent I had, running a team and shipping product and, you know, driving revenue. And so Peter and I started that business and we ran it for a long time out of my house in LA. And we, the idea was really simple. Bottled water at the time was a $15 billion category in the US. You know, Evian was been here for many years in Pellegrino. But, you know, Fiji had just gotten here a couple of years before. The super premium bottled water market was starting to take off. And yet at the same time, there was a billion children in the world who lacked clean drinking water, two and Mm a half billion who lacked sanitation. It was responsible for more water-related diseases, killed children under five than any other cause. And it's not just the mortality, it was also the morbidity, like the diminished productivity, the lost hours women would spend in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, a good portion of their day walking miles to get to a water source, pick up water with like a, you know, recycled chemical container or a gourd or something or a basket and then bring it home and it would be dirty, sick in their kids who then couldn't go to school or couldn't, you know, be productive. So we thought, what if you took this premium product, this, you know, irrational act and turned it into uh, something very rational? What if you link the consumption and the cause? And at that time, we started working on this in 2002, 2003. B Corps weren't a thing. ESG wasn't a thing. Social responsible business was limited to companies like The Body Shop or Ben & Jerry's or Stonyfield Farms, where the product and the cause were very attenuated. Like nobody was buying pints of Chunky Monkey because they they didn't use recombinant bovine growth hormone. They bought Chunky Monkey because it tasted good. And yet the reality was we thought if you could bring those cause of consumption much closer, drink this water, someone gets clean water, water for water, that would resonate with consumers and we could raise awareness about this huge problem. Billion people lack clean drinking water. There was an NGO called WaterAid out of the UK that estimated that the cost to provide someone with a lifetime supply of clean drinking water is about $25. Chalk that up to the fact that most of these people are in very poor places. It's not that expensive to deliver it to them. Even if you think that number's off, call it $100 a person. Billion people, a hundred billion dollars to solve the problem. We couldn't do that, but we thought if we could raise awareness, we yes, we would drive dollars. But raising awareness could educate and, and energize a whole population of social entrepreneurs to try to tackle this problem. So we started that business. We started selling the product in LA, and eventually got some scale and started selling it through Whole Foods, and got more scale and started selling some other larger customers and got some more scale and eventually went to Starbucks and went to them because we wanted a distribution deal because Starbucks is a remarkable business with a, with a dedicated distribution network, price sensitive mm-hmm. consumers. They didn't have a premium bottle of water in their stores at the time. We thought this is a perfect marriage. And Starbucks eventually came back to us and said, it is a perfect marriage, but we don't just want to get married. You know, we want to like adopt you. So they proposed an acquisition. And even if We weren't expecting it at that time. You know, our mission, like you said, was not to build the biggest bottled water company. Our mission was to help children around the world get clean water. And an acquisition by Starbucks seemed like a powerful way that we could turbocharge that mission. And even if it meant foreclosing some financial opportunity, and I think it did, uh, it did mean getting to our goal much quicker than we could have done on our own. Yet we did the acquisition and I got asked by Howard Schultz to be the VP for Global Consumer Products and helped to launch the brand Inside Starbucks distribution, you know, retail footprint, and then I got asked to serve on the board of the foundation. Now we had millions in free cash flow. How were we going to distribute it? So it was an exciting journey, and I feel really blessed. I've had the opportunity.
1: When I think about your story of ethos, think about what you're doing now with the ADL, uh, thinking about that you were a special assistant to President Obama. What influenced you to want to do such good in the world?
0: I mean, I look. I had loving parents, and I was grew up in a very middle class town in Connecticut. And they gave me good values. And you know, my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor from Germany. I mean, my grandfather, he was a young man, never would have imagined that his whole family would be slaughtered and his world turned upside down and he would flee his country and come here. He just didn't expect that. So, and my wife and her family are Iranian refugees who came here in the late 80s, like 1989. They never expected my wife, they're expected to grow up, have her children, my kids here in America. My father-in-law's story is like my grandfather's story. And to think about my own story, I don't take for granted that my children will, none of my grandchildren will be born in this country unless we fight for what we have. So making the world a better place isn't like, from my mind, some afterthought, something you bolt on to the end of your career. I think it's been fundamental, kind of true north throughout my life because I want to make sure that the privileges I've enjoyed that so many of us have enjoyed uh, are things we, I can extend to the next generation.
1: All right, three quick questions. So first, tell me about something that's been on your mind lately. This can be a book, a movie, an idea, a quote, anything that you're hooked on.
0: Uh, I just finished two really interesting books. I finished a book by Dara Horne. Called Everyone Loves Dead Jews, which is all about the persistence of anti Semitism throughout time and, and the way, as a almost like a virus, anti Semitism, anti Jewish hate mutates and adapts to different circumstances, and how we need to see the through line over the centuries, over the different issues, so we can actually do something about anti Semitism. And I finished a book called All of the Marbles, which is a book by Wolf, which is about Marvel Comics. This guy read every Marvel comic from like the 1950s to today, all of them, which is a lot, and about different social themes and like broader plots out, reflects society, which I thought was quite interesting too. Those are two great books I just finished. I love Apple TV. I love The Morning Show. I watched the, uh, the show C, which is really good with Jason Mamula. And I also really like Succession. So those are things around my mind.
1: Give us a hot take. What's something you believe? that a lot of people would disagree with.
0: I think the Red Sox will win the World Series in 2022.
1: Lifelong Yankee fans. It's the first thing that I can't support. All right. And last, uh, who is someone you'd love to hear as a guest on Word on the C Street?
0: I love Andrew Ross Sorkin. I think he's one of the most interesting observers of like the marketplace today, how it intersects with society. He'd be a great guest. Uh, I love Daniel Lebetsky from Kind. The Mexican-American entrepreneur who's built such an interesting business has a very interesting take on the role of companies in society. And third, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen, he's got a great take on social media. He'd be a good one to get as well. All right. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening to Word on the C-Street. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with friends. You can reach us at info at and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thecstreet